For the first time in its history, England had made a move that infringed on the rights of her crown jewel, the colony of Virginia. And if England stomped on Virginia's right to pass laws for the good of its people, this could lead to the early hallmarks of a revolutionary response. Liz knew one thing for certain. The new King of England would soon be hearing a voice in the court 3,000 miles away. And that voice would belong to Patrick Henry. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. Today we're featuring Chapter 39 from The Voice of Revolution in the Key entitled The Power Behind the Throne. Later, we'll have a special announcement to make. We'll check in with Jenny L. Cody herself in Jenny's Corner, and with today's episode, it seemed only fitting and proper to learn more about the British throne. The British throne? Eh, big deal. It'd just be a big fancy chair. That's not exactly... I think what Monsieur Announcer is referring to is those who sit on the British throne. Huh. To sit on the fancy chair, you got to be wearing some fancy pants. But this isn't... Indeed. And those fancy pants must be crafted by a royal tailor. Uh, you mean like Taylor Swift? Of course not. No, Max, uh, more like uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Well, actually, more like Queen Elizabeth. Actually, neither. Elizabeth Taylor? What, a queen? No, Max, you see... Well, perhaps the Queen of Hollywood for a time, no? Indeed, I say, she was once quite the fetching young maiden in her first picture... National Velvet. Well, okay, true, but... Hi, so we're back to the fancy chair with the cushions covered in National Velvet. I say, we've come full circle then, haven't we? Hey, well done, old boy. And so, before the show completely gets away from me... Uh, too late, monsieur. No kidding. Uh, here are your hosts. First, our resident Brit, full of wisdom and wit, Nigel P. Monaco. I say, well done. Uh, one of your stronger introductions, I must say. Oh, well, thank you, Nigel. And next, the brilliant cat from France... Who cares not about fancy pants? Uh, Lisette Briand. Oh, merci, monsieur. And finally, the feisty wee Scott, who gets confused a lot. Hey, no, Maximilian Graveheart the Bruce. Well, at least you got me name right. And I don't get confused a lot. People just say confusing things to me. Nah, okay, that must be it. Oui, but, uh, monsieur, uh, what is this special announcement you mentioned at the top of the show? Well, it's something new that uh, Miss Jenny and I teamed up on that we want everybody to know about. Oh, well, merci. That was as clear as mud. Indeed, old boy. That was spot on the nose, uh, said no one. <laughs> I think I know what he means, Mosey. So, ha, now who's confused? Oh, you know what I'm talking about, Max? Uh, well, to be honest, lad, uh, no. But I thought it might be nice to think that Maybe one of us really did know what you were talking about. <laughs> I say, now that was spot on the nose. Oui, très bien. <laughs> oh, ha, 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 ha. You know, just for that, I'm, I'm just going to wait until after the chapter to tell you what the big special announcement is. I see. So uh, let me get this straight. You're punishing us by 
telling us a great story. Oh, dear, whatever will we do? Why, if we are not careful, we will <gasps> enjoy ourselves. But no, we sure can't let that happen. Well, then maybe I won't play. No, lad, you were right. We're getting exactly what we deserve. Oui, monsieur, this is justice. <laughs> so uh, let us hear, I mean, uh, make us hear the next chapter. Indeed, old boy, I say, throw the old book at us. Or the audio book in this case. Are you done? Aye. Oh, uh, just one more thing then, lad. What? Mash button number one. That's what makes the chapter play then. It is? Aye. <laughs> no who's confused. Chapter 39. The Power Behind the Throne. Hanover, April 1761. George is dead. George the Mighty, the Just, the Gentle, and the Wise. King George, the father of Britain and her colonies, the guardian of laws and liberty, the protector of the oppressed, the arbiter of Europe, the terror of tyrants and France. George, the friend of man, the benefactor of millions, is no more. Millions tremble at the alarm. Britain expresses her sorrow in national groans. Europe re-echoes to the melancholy sound. The melancholy sound circulates far and wide. This remote American continent shares in the loyal sympathy. Patrick stopped reading and looked at Sally holding up the printed sermon on the death of King George, delivered at Princeton College, January 14, 1761, by Rev. Samuel Davies. I wonder if Samuel knew he would die only a few short weeks after preaching this sermon. Patrick's mother Sarah had sent this sermon to Patrick, having stayed in touch with Rev. Davies after he left Hanover to go become president of Princeton College in New Jersey, requesting copies of his printed sermons. She had proudly written to their former pastor about Patrick's successful new law career, knowing he would be pleased to hear the happy news. Samuel was so young, only thirty-seven, Sally answered sadly. Patrick shook his head mournfully, and he stoked the fire as he and Sally enjoyed a few quiet moments together before bed. Although I was sad when he left Hanover... I was excited for the incredible honor he had been given to lead at Princeton. But I never dreamed we would lose him just eighteen months later. It comes as a shock to us all. He was a big part of our lives growing up, but I know Samuel had an especially big impact on you personally, Pat. Sally replied with a sympathetic smile. Didn't your mother make you recite his sermons on the way home from church? Patrick smiled fondly as he remembered those days. Yes, she did. I'll never forget the very first sermon I re-preached on the way home. He cleared his throat and held up a hand in dramatic form. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. Empires have fallen. Liberty has been chained. Property has been invaded. The lives of men have been randomly taken away, and misery and despair have come in like a flood. When the government has been entrusted in the hands of childish tyranny. He paced in front of the crackling hearth, where Sally sat eagerly listening to him, 
as he tried to recall the words he had repeated on the way home from Pole Green. He looked up at the ceiling, as if replaying that day in his mind. He closed his eyes and thought back to the scene as he drove his mother and sisters home in the carriage. He opened his eyes and slowly allowed his voice to grow in urgency. Sometimes the desires of foreign countries or even of tyrants in our own land may threaten our liberties. Like a cannon aimed and ready to fire against the church of God, while every believing heart trembles in fear, he paused and held his arms out wide. But the Lord reigns. Let the earth and let the church rejoice. Patrick then balled his fist and leaned over to give Sally an assertive nod. He will overrule the revolutions of the world for her good, and the united powers of earth and hell shall not prevail against her. Sally lifted her eyebrows in surprised delight that he could remember something from so long ago. Amen, Mr. Henry, she exclaimed, clapping her hands. You are quite a powerful speaker, sir. No wonder you have won so many cases in your first year. Perhaps you should be a circuit-riding lawyer and parson. Miss P. could take you to the churches as well as to the courthouses. Patrick wore a sad smile as he took a seat to gaze at the fire's dancing flames. Liz jumped up on his lap, and he slowly stroked her fur. Samuel Davies taught me what an orator should be. But I pray he was not a prophet in that sermon, Sally said, drawing a curious look from Patrick. Our new King George is not much older than a child. He is only twenty-two years old, Pat, yet he commands the most powerful nation on earth. Time will tell, Sally. We will see what the real power is behind the throne as his advisers instruct him, Patrick replied. For now, British subjects are to mourn King George the Second before celebrating King George the Third with a royal wedding and a coronation. He lifted Davy's sermon, wrinkling his brow. I'm actually more concerned over what dead King George did with one of the final decisions of his reign. Samuel Davies spoke too kindly about our departed King George on one point. What point is that? Sally asked, in surprise, to hear Patrick talk this way. Patrick lifted the sermon to read the opening words. King George, the father of Britain and her colonies, the guardian of laws and liberty. He shook his head and set the sermon down on the side table. Before he died, the king struck down the temporary two-penny acts passed by our Virginia House of Burgesses to help the people struggling from the tobacco droughts. People like us, you mean, Sally added, when tobacco was all we had to support ourselves. Patrick frowned and nodded, looking at his hands that were no longer dirty and rough from working in his failing tobacco fields. His law practice had quickly grown to 70 clients with 176 cases in his first eight months alone. He wasn't rich yet, by any means, but at least he was starting to get back on his feet. Half of his clients owed him money, as all Virginia struggled from the recent hard years for the tobacco growers. It would take time for him to make enough money to even buy a house for his family and to move away from Hanover Tavern. So for now, 
The sign hanging from the front of the tavern advertised his resident office, Patrick Henry, attorney at law. Patrick well understood the endless toil farmers currently faced in their fields for such little tobacco and income, yet they were still required by law to pay their share of the 16,000 pounds of tobacco due to each parson, normally worth two pennies per pound. Parsons were not paid in physical tobacco, but in paper receipts for tobacco that had been delivered to the warehouses of Virginia for shipment to Great Britain. Because of the poor tobacco crops in 1755 and 1758, the price of tobacco had tripled to six pennies per pound. The Virginia House of Burgesses knew the struggling farmers needed help, so they passed the temporary two-penny acts, so the people would only have to pay the parsons the usual average amount of two pennies, and they could pay with coin rather than in tobacco. The parsons would receive what they normally did each year, so they wouldn't lose their regular income. But the parsons weren't satisfied with that. They wanted to be paid the extra amount from the tripled price of tobacco. They wanted more money, despite the fact that it would come out of the pockets of their toiling parishioners. The Virginia Parsons went over the heads of Governor Farquhar and our lawmakers all the way to London to claim that these temporary relief laws were an attack on the church. The Bishop of London actually called the laws treasonous. They asked that the laws be made null and void from inception so they could get the money owed them all at the expense of their parishioners. The king did strike down the law, but it is unclear if the law was made void from the date it was passed in Virginia or from the date the king's royal quill declared it so in London, Patrick explained. If void from its passing, the parsons can sue to get the extra money they seek. If void from the date in London, the parsons wouldn't be owed the extra money since the temporary law had expired by then. Battles are coming in the courts to determine the answer to that timing question. When were the two penny acts made void? Liz studied the passion rising in Patrick's voice, realizing how the people had lost their voice in this battle with the king. They needed someone to speak up for them. Patrick clenched his jaw. Part of me is glad that Samuel Davies isn't here to see the ugliness happening in Virginia. The Parsons and Burgesses are fighting each other with words in pamphlets and newspapers, and now the Parsons are starting to file lawsuits to get the precious back pay owed to them after the King's ruling. Can you imagine, Sally, Parsons suing their own people for money? Samuel's heart would be broken if he saw this madness and his voice would no doubt be heard loud and clear as he preached against the despicable behavior of these parsons, Sally added angrily. But would he have preached against the despicable behavior of the king? Patrick added, drawing a look of shock from Sally. How can a king three thousand miles away understand what his struggling subjects need? That's why his governor and burgesses are in place, to know what the people need, and to act in their best interest. People in crisis cannot wait for months on end to send a request and receive a reply from the king on certain matters. What the Virginia Assembly did was right and just and timely to meet the crisis. Yet the king listened to greedy parsons over his own representatives in government. The king shut his ears to what the people needed in their time of crisis. 
He waved off his bold comments. Well, Samuel's voice is no longer here. Liz looked up at Patrick and forcefully swished her tail. But your voice is here, Mon Henry. Just listen to you. A disturbing thought occurred to Sally as she held her hand up to her face. Oh, Pat, is your Uncle Patrick involved in this mess? Patrick rested his head back on the chair, closed his eyes, and breathed out a deep sigh as he stroked Liz. Yes, Sally, my uncle, the Reverend Patrick Henry, is in the middle of this war between the shepherds and their sheep, and my father, Colonel John Henry, is as well. He'll be a judge to hear any lawsuits brought by the parsons that come to Hanover Courthouse. Liz's golden eyes glanced over at Patrick's fiery fiddle that seemed to glow from the reflection of the fire. A voice in the court. Liz's mind started to race with the next part of the riddle. For the first time in this entire mission, Liz could finally see a showdown where Patrick's voice might be heard as it never had been heard before, and in a way that could make all Virginia sit up and take notice. He was being prepared for this coming legal battle his entire life, Liz thought excitedly. Patrick had heard the arguments between the Anglican Parsons and the dissenters in his own household, so understood the tensions between the Parsons and the people. He had seen the battle of church and state as Davies and the dissenters struggled with following the law while pursuing religious freedom. He had experienced the agony of tobacco farming and the financial hardships his fellow farmers faced. With his failed store and now booming law practice, he personally understood the plight of the people racked with debt from the poor tobacco harvests. And Samuel Davies had been the one to teach Patrick Henry how to move crowds to action with his own voice, speaking the truth boldly and with courage when it needed to be said. For the first time in its history, England had made a move that infringed on the rights of her crown jewel, the colony of Virginia. Never before had Virginia seen the king declare one of its laws void from inception as the Parsons so claimed. And if England stomped on Virginia's right to pass laws for the good of its people, this could lead to the early hallmarks of a revolutionary response. Although she didn't see exactly how just yet, Liz knew one thing for certain. The new king of England would soon be hearing a voice in the court 3,000 miles away, and that voice would belong to Patrick Henry. Westminster Abbey, London, September 22, 1761 George be a king, Al said in a high-pitched lady's voice, pointing a chicken leg at Clary and Gilliman. That's what his mum told him. Ye should hear the sort of stuff she tells the lad know that he has the throne. Al swallowed another bite of the delicious food and spoke with a full mouth, spitting morsels as he relayed his latest intelligence gathered in the palace. She told King George that he should make the people always do his will, since it be the right of kings to have their own way. The orange cat tossed back the cleaned-off chicken bone, licked his greasy paws, and purred with delight as he peeked back into the picnic basket. What's for dessert? 
Gilliman and Clary looked at one another with frowns as Al dug into their basket for a sweet bite. They had joined the hundreds of other happy British subjects sitting in the balcony of the soaring cathedral who were gathered here to witness the joyous historic moment, the coronation of King George III and Queen Charlotte. All London buzzed with excitement, anticipating this grand event. Such was the clamor to get to Westminster Abbey this morning that carriages collided in the streets of London. People poured into the hall bringing baskets of food and wine they had brought to celebrate in Westminster Hall following the coronation. Al decided that dining a la coronation was in order, so had already dived into Mr. Gilliman and Lady Clary's bounty. Well, if he follows his mum's advice... King George III will be more interested in listening to those who tell him what he wants to hear rather than what he needs to know, Clarice said. For lack of guidance, a nation falls, but many advisers make victory sure, Gilliman said, quoting from Proverbs. Clarice and Gilliman gazed over the railing as King George III sat in the coronation chair while the Archbishop of Canterbury, senior cleric in the Church of England, placed the golden crown of jewels on his head. Three cheers erupted from the people, exclaiming, God save the king! Immediately, trumpeters sounded their fanfare, and the church bells rang out across the city, while shots that were fired as salutes echoed off the stone walls of the Tower of London and filled the trees of Hyde Park with smoke. After a moment, the archbishop raised his hands and offered a prayer over the king. God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness, that having a right faith and a manifold fruit of good works, you may obtain the crown of an everlasting kingdom by the gift of him whose kingdom endureth for ever. Amen. Suddenly the soaring music of George F. Handel's coronation anthem filled Westminster Abbey. Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. And all the people rejoiced and said, God save the king, long live the king. Gilliman stroked his white goatee as he studied the group of men surrounding the king, all dressed in the finery of his royal court. Time will tell if this king will listen to prophets or puppets who advise him of things to come, with the colonies. I wonder who will be the true power behind the throne, Clarie added. Al joined Clarie and Gilliman at the railing as King George removed his crown to take communion. When the king had set down his crown, they saw the unmistakable shimmer of a jewel fall out of his crown and land on the royal blue rug behind the throne. Al pointed at the lost jewel with a cookie. A new prophet... But seems to me, if this king don't keep his jewels glued to his crown, no telling what else he'll lose on his throne next. Aye, so the throne be fancy, and the king be wearing fancy pants, but soon's like his crown, be needing to spend some time in the shop. Oui, Max, it uh, seems to need a tune-up, no? <laughs> but uh, perhaps it was rather old. <laughs> you mean, he's a brand new king, but they make him wear a hand-me-down crown? Uh, so it would seem, uh, but let's get a little more insight from our resident British-American citizen with another edition of Nigel's News Nuggets. Greetings. 
Nigel P. Monaco reporting on the long history of British monarchs. Those wee orange butterflies? Ah, uh, he means the kings and queens. Shh. British royalty has been traced back all the way to the late 800s with King Alfred the Great. Uh, what was so great about him? Well, he was the first one, so he did not have a lot of competition. Uh, may I? Oh yeah, go ahead, Mosey. Now there is rather spotty information over the next 100 years until Edward the Confessor claimed the British throne in 1042. Uh, what did he have to confess? Uh, said he wanted to be king, I suppose. Continuing... There was much turmoil and infighting until 1066 when William of Normandy, better known as William the Conqueror, overtook King Harold in the Battle of Hastings. Ah, bien sûr. Of course he was a conqueror. He was from Normandy. Aye, whatever, lass. One of the most interesting British rulers reigned in the early 1600s, King James I, already King James VI in Scotland. Huh, what did he do with the other five? Max, shh! <clears throat> Thus became the first to rule over Scotland, Ireland, and England, or as he liked to call it, Great Britain. <laughs> he was well-educated, a lover of the theatre, and was a contemporary of William Shakespeare. He's considered the founding monarch of the United States, as he ruled when the first permanent English settlement of Jamestown. Oh, I get it. James. Tone. Trebian, Max. Mm. Was settled in Virginia, and of course, he was a man of great faith, and gave his subjects the Bible translation that still bears his name to this day. Since then, there have been seventeen British monarchs, including King George III, whom we met today, uh, Queen Victoria, and many others. But the longest reign in British history is currently taking place. Oh no, with all that rain, I'll bet it'd be flooding by now. Not that kind of rain, Max. I say, may I finish my thought? We, uh, oui, Nigel, pardon. Our current queen, Elizabeth II, has been ruling since 1952, closing in on 70 years, an all-time British record. I say, well done, old girl. Uh, I mean, uh, your highness. <laughs> uh, for Nigel's News Nuggets, I'm Nigel P. Monaco in the newsroom. Oh, thank you, Nigel. And now, a word from Monsieur Announcer, who will tell us his important news. Uh, drum roll, s'il vous plaît. Aye, lass. Uh, good job, Max. Well, hey, gang, it's true. I do have some exciting news. As of the original airing of this podcast in December of 2021, we have just completed the third audiobook from the Epic Order of the Seven series by Epic author Jenny L. Cody. It is now available for download, just in time for Christmas, as we speak, on audible.com. It's The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy. As we continue the saga of America's quest for independence, The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy, the second book of Cody's epic revolutionary saga, focuses on the beginning of the Revolutionary War from March 1775 to July 1776. That might ring a bell. And it tells some of the incredible yet maybe lesser-known struggles of the war before independence was declared. So you owe it to yourself and your youngsters to download this masterpiece. This audiobook provides over 27 and a half hours of entertainment. It's fact plus fiction plus fantasy equals fun. Lots of it. So download your copy today. Go to audible.com, audible.com, and look for The Declaration, The Sword, and The Spy by Jenny L. Cody. Oh, magnifique! Merci, monsieur! Aye, and congratulations, laddie! That'd be a big job!
Yeah, it sure was, but it was also a labor of love, and I think it came out really well. Indeed, old boy. Uh, congratulations on your success. Well, thanks, Nigel, but what do you mean by success? Well, of course, the setting out to accomplish the completion of this major production, and by Jove, completing it. Uh, well done. Uh, isn't that how you think of success? Well, uh, perhaps Monsieur sees this as just a beginning, no? Uh, that uh, now, to be a success, it must sell many copies. Aye, or get great reviews or something. Or, here's something, why don't we ask the lady who wrote the story, without which we wouldn't even have an audiobook to talk about. Oh, that is a good idea, monsieur. Uh, let's go to Jenny's corner. Uh, bonjour, Miss Jenny. Liz, what's on your brilliant mind today? Well, it seems that there are many ways to measure success. So we want to know, how do you define success? How do I define success? Well, some people might define success for an author by being if they've hit the New York Times bestseller list. I haven't done that, but I submit that I'm the most successful author I could have ever been or be because of the impact that I've seen on kids and young people and families. And I've seen the impact of the books, not because I'm all that and all that awesome of a writer. I know that I take dictation. I know I'm God's little scribe. He's the <laughs> he's the real author with the capital A. I just pray and I said, okay, God, tell me what to write. Tell me what happens next. And I write it. And God's been teaching me a lot over the last couple of years about, you know what? Don't get hung up on numbers. I mean, I've sold a good amount of books. They're all over the world. I, I have readers in every continent except Antarctica, I think. <laughs> And I would term that a success for sure. But ultimately, God says, you know what, Jenny? I inspire you to write these books. You write them. And then the results are none of your business. It's up to me. I'm going to get these books into the hands of the readers I want them to be. So he gives me affirmation of success when I get an email when I get a Facebook post or an Instagram message telling me, oh, Mrs. Cody, you don't know how much your books have meant to me. You don't know how I was struggling going to school and needing to be very brave. And I read how Max handled something and it gave me courage too. Or I just didn't understand this part of scripture and now I do and now I even know how to apply it. I've had a lot of kids tell me when they read the Roman, the Twelve, and the King that they finally understand what Jesus did for them on the cross. And they wept as they finally grasped how much he loved them and what he went through for them. Could there be any greater success than hearing that a child accepted Christ because of my books? Because that's happened. And there could be no higher measure of success. So do I consider myself a success? <laughs> Through that lens, absolutely. Well, indeed, that measure of success cannot be exceeded. Thank you, Miss Jenny. Oh, she has put it all in perspective, no? There is quantity and there is quality of success. Aye, but it also seems like the more people we get to listen, the more books that are downloaded. And the more chances there are for them to hear about Jesus and how much he loves them then. Well, indeed, that is true as well. So, what do we do with this 
success conundrum. Well, let's just not let it be a conundrum. What do you mean, lad? Well, don't let ourselves be caught up with results. And uh, I admit, I'm preaching to myself here. Instead, give it over to God. Do the best we can with something, and then let the results be his business. That way he gets all the glory. And we have peace. Then we do not let our hearts be troubled. And we don't be anxious for nothing. Casting all our worries on him. For he cares for us. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! Abiento, mis amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.